Journey of the Generations Mark Twain said it most pithily. When I was a boy of 14, my father was so ignorant I could hardly stand to have the old man around. But when I got to be 21, I was astonished at how much the old man had learned in seven years. Whether Freud was right or wrong about the Oedipus complex, there is surely this much truth to it that the power and pain of adolescence is that we seek to define ourselves as different, individuated, somebody other than our parents. When we were young, they were the sustaining presence in our lives, our security, our stability, our source of groundedness in the world. The first and deepest terror we have as very young children is separation anxiety, the absence especially of the mother. Young children will play happily so long as mother or caregiver is within sight. Absent that, and there's panic. We're too young to venture into the world on our own. It's precisely the stable, predictable presence of parents in our early years that give us the basic sense of trust in life. But then comes the time as we approach adulthood, when we have to learn to make our own way in the world. Those are the years of searching and, in some cases, rebellion. They're what makes adolescence so fraught. The Hebrew word for youth, the root na'ar, has these connotations of awakening and shaking. We begin to define ourselves by reference to our friends, our peer group, rather than our family. Often there is tension between the generations. The literary theorist Harold Bloom wrote two fascinating books, The Anxiety of Influence and Maps of Misreading, in which, in Freudian style, he argued that strong poets make space for themselves by deliberately misinterpreting or misunderstanding their predecessors. Otherwise, if you were really in awe of the great poets that came before you, you'd be stymied by a sense that Everything that could be said has been said, and better than you could possibly do. Creating the space we need to be ourselves often involves an adversarial relationship to those who came before us, and that includes our parents. One of the great discoveries that tends to come with age is that we begin to realize that having spent what seems like a lifetime of running away from our parents we find that we've become very much like them. And the further we ran, the closer we became. Hence the truth in Mark Twain's insight. It needs time and distance to see how much we owe our parents and how much of them lives on in us. The way the Torah explains this in relationship to Abraham, or Abraham as he is then called, is remarkable in its subtlety. Lech Lecha, and indeed Jewish history, begins with the words, God said to Abraham, Go from your land, your birthplace, and your father's house, to a land I will show you. Now this is the boldest beginning of any account of a life in the Hebrew Bible. It seems to come from nowhere. The Torah gives us no portrait of Abraham's childhood, his youth, his relationship with the other members of his family, how he came to marry Sarah, or the qualities of character that made God single him out to become the initiator of what ultimately turned out to be the greatest revolution in the religious history of humankind, what's nowadays called Abrahamic monotheism. It was this biblical silence that led to the Midrashic tradition almost all of us learnt as children, that Abraham broke the idols 
in his father's house. This is Abraham the Revolutionary, the iconoclast, the man of new beginnings who overturned everything his father stood for. This is, if you like, Freud's Abraham. Perhaps it's only as we grow older that we're able to go back and read the story again and realize the significance of the passage at the end of the previous parsha. This is what it says. Terach took his son Abram, his grandson Lot, son of Haran, and his daughter-in-law Sarai, wife of his son Abram, and together they set out from Or of the Chaldeans to go to Canaan. But they came to Haran and they settled there. It turns out, in other words, that Abram left his father's house long after he had left his land and his birthplace. His birthplace was in Ur, in what today is southern Iraq. But he only separated from his father in Haran, in what is now northern Syria. Terach, Abram's father, accompanied him for the first half of his journey. He went with his son at least part of the way. What actually happened? Well, there are two possibilities. The first is that Abraham received his call in Ur. His father, Terach, then agreed to go with him, intending to accompany him to the land of Canaan, though he didn't complete the journey, perhaps because of age. The second is that the call came to Abraham in Haran, in which case his father had already begun the journey on his own initiative by leaving Ur. Either way, the break between Abram and his father was far less dramatic than we first thought. I've argued elsewhere, especially in my new book, Not in God's Name, that biblical narrative is far more subtle than we usually take it to be. It's deliberately written to be understood at different levels, at different stages in our moral growth. There's the surface narrative, but there's also often a deeper story which we only come to notice and understand when we've reached a certain level of maturity. I call this the concealed counter-narrative. And the story of Abraham and his father is a classic example. When we are young, we hear the enchanting, indeed empowering, story of Abraham breaking his father's idols with its message that a child can sometimes be right and a parent wrong, especially when it comes to spirituality and faith. That's the story we respond to as children. Only much later in life do we hear the far deeper truth, hidden in the, disguise, in the guise of a simple genealogy at the end of the previous parsha, that Abraham was actually completing a journey his father began. There's a line in the book of Joshua, we read it as part of the Haggadah on Sedanite, that says that in the past your ancestors lived beyond the Euphrates River, including Terach, the father of Abraham and Nahor, and they worshipped other gods. So there was idolatry in Abraham's family background. But Genesis 11 says that it was Terach who taught Abraham, not Abraham who took Terach from Ur to go to the land of Canaan. There was no immediate and radical break between father and son. Indeed, it's hard to imagine how it could have been otherwise. Avram, Abraham's original name, means mighty father. Abraham himself was chosen so that he would instruct his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord. That is, he was chosen to be a model parent. Now, how could a child who rejected the way of his father 
become a father of children who wouldn't reject his own way in turn. It makes much more sense to say that Terach already had doubts about idolatry, and it was he who inspired Abraham to go further, spiritually and physically. Abraham continued a journey his father had begun, thereby helping Isaac and Jacob, his son and grandson, to chart their own ways of serving God, the same God, but encountered in different ways. Which brings us back to Mark Twain. Often we begin by thinking how different we are from our parents. It takes time for us to appreciate how much they helped us become the people we are. Even when we thought we were running away, we were, in fact, continuing their journey. Much of what we are is because of what they were.